Wednesday, Wednesday, just checking, Max working. Great, I'm going to need everyone's attention. Obviously, we don't have the whiteboards here. Um, but if I'm honest with you, I, w I didn't have much to put up there anyway. But I'm going to need your attention anyway. Just as a reminder from what we learned the last couple of weeks when we, as we're looking through Jonah, can anyone tell me, especially the youngsters here, what we've learned in the last couple of days? I mean, last couple of weeks. Can anyone remember what happened we, um, in one Jonah or two Jonah? Who can remember what we looked at? Who can remember? Anyone? Exactly, your prayer wasn't sincere. What else did we learn? Or what else happened? Yep. And what else? No one? Okay, I see that we're all shy then. It's okay. So we've learned that God came, the word of God came to Jonah. And God told Jonah, go and preach against this city, Nivea. And tell them because their sin has come up to me. Of course, Jonah didn't do that. He ran away, tried to flee from God. This time in our chapter 3, we see there's a parallel between chapter 1. So in chapter 1, God, the word comes to Jonah. Jonah tries to flee from God. This time, Jonah is actually obeying God after being swallowed up by fish and then spit, spitting out back into land. The word of God comes to him again. He's learned by his personal experiences that God is determined that God is sovereign and that God is going to use his will to make sure that people hear of his word. The raging storm and being in the belly of the fish was his teachers of exactly that. And this time he learned also that God is gracious. God is full of mercy to use him even though he's a prophet and he should not otherwise. Just look into our verse as we look into this uh, as we look into our extract today. Look with me to uh, verse four. So now, first of all, chapter three. So now Jonah has gone to the city of Nivea, and he's about to preach. He's about to do the command that God has given him. It says, Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, forty more days." and Nivea will be overthrown. Forty more days, and Nivea will be overthrown. We are not told here if indeed Jonah only preached a few words, so we have a few words here. In the Hebrew, it was only five words. But what we, are, what we can see from this, what, the insight we gain, is that we gain a, a general thrust of his message. And we can break this up into two parts, as you see. You see, what we, what we do know is that referring back to the beginning of our chapter 1, or our chapter 3, is that God told Jonah, go and call out against it. Go and call out against the city. And what we do know also is a prophet is to speak the word of God given to him to speak. He's not to speak anything else. Forty more days and never will be overthrown. The idea of 40 more days suggests an impending doom 
a looming judgment upon the heads of those inhabitants of the city. And not later, but rather soon. And the word overthrown there is the same language used in Genesis 17. When God brought destruction and annihilation to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so in a sense, we gain a seriousness of what's happening. The seriousness that God has with the city. In other words, Jonah is simply fulfilling what God used as his means, his means to present judgment to cities. God would present judgment to cities, to nations, as a way of causing them, of of a way of telling them that they must return away from the sin. And this is the same as we see in Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 7 to 8. It's not on the board, but I'll read it out. If at, any t- if at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repent of its evil, then I will relent and not afflict on its disaster I have planned. You see, the sin of Nivea came up to God. God is now sending Jonah to that city. Because he must do justice for the sins that come up to him. But if they relent, he will not bring on destruction upon them. This paints a picture of God's seriousness, by which God sees sin. You see, sin is behavior that goes completely against the character of God and who he is. The boundaries he set for us, the rules, the right and wrongs. Including his authority and against our fellow neighbors. But ultimately, our sin is against God. And if that's the case, if our sin's against God, but God is a God of justice, there's some things we should consider, especially as a church. Again, we are here, and we have recently moved here. We want to evangelize to the people of Wandsworth. Do we bring in the judgment of God in our evangelism? Because the judgment of God is within his character. So let me ask you this, a few questions. We hear within our circle, God loves a sinner and hates the sin. Though this statement is somewhat true, you have to ask yourself, In Sodom and Gomorrah, when God brought judgment, when God rained judgment upon the people for their sin, because they are unrepentant, because they loved their sin, did God bring judgment on sin or the people? After God had finished his judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, the people simply walk about and was a sin somewhere there. Or was it the other way? Was sin and people both destroyed? Or in modern day evangelism, especially some circles that we know, we often find someone and we'll say, God loves you. I know that's true. Think about it this way. 
if the human heart is naturally wicked and we're naturally selfish and we love our own ways and I tell a man on the street or a woman God loves you see the temptation with that is that simply this in their current state they are haters of God they don't love his ways and they cannot understand the ways of God so then by me telling them that God loves them the temptation is that they can think they are okay. In the natural sense of their heart, they are naturally self-entitled. We all, we all are naturally. And so I think, oh great, God loves me. I can do whatever I want. God loves me. Great, I mean, I, I, he should love me, right? I mean, come on. Like. And so the issue with that is that that person has no sense of God's judgment. And the temptation again, I said it was three times, that they may, I, they may idolize God, a God, rather than the true God of the Bible. You see, judgment is something that is from God's character and something we shouldn't omit from our gospel proclamation, but we shouldn't omit when we tell others about Jesus. You see, what God has done through Jonah is to bring people into account with himself that they may know that he is the only true God who defines what is wrong and right. He is supremely holy and there's no speck of evil within God. And if it was even in his presence, it would be vanquished. It would be absorbed. See, not even sin can remain in the presence of God. He's that holy He's that good. This means that the people of of city of the people of Nivea would see themselves not in light of this, not in light of them own selves, not in light of their own judgments, but in light of how God sees them, in light of God's judgment. For that is the only way we are to see ourselves. Not in line of our judgment, what we deem as good and wrong and right, for we are not the created ones. For God is, true, God is a true creator. With him belongs wisdom, righteousness, understanding. And so we have to see ourselves in God's judgment. And so we're going to see from, as we go down to next, the next section, is that we're going to see that the people are now understanding that they are deserving of judgment. By God, by God's own righteous judgment of, of them, and that they are in no entitlement of mercy by the way they have lived. You see, if we don't mention this in our gospel proclamation, if we don't mention this in our evangelism, people won't see the need of Christ. They won't see the supreme love of God demonstrated on the cross because they will have no need of it. They won't be brought into accountability of God. Let's move on. Let's look at verses 5 to 9. So Jonah now becomes faded in the rest of his chapter. He's no longer there. The focus is drawn to the response <coughs> and the actions of the Nivites and God's dealings with them. So between verses 5 to 9, we'll see their response. 
in the form of the repentance. When Nivets believed God, a fast was proclaimed, all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warnings reached the king of Nivea, he rose from his throne and took off the royal robes, covered himself in his sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nivea. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. So let's look at the responses of the people. The first one is that they believed in God from the greatest in society to the least in society. The word belief here in its original language is more to do with the whole idea of confirming, to agreeing, to proving that something's faithful. In other words, they believed the very words of Jonah. They believed that it was from God himself. It was from that flow of belief did the fruits of repentance come to the fruits of that belief shone through. It's very evident here that believing also goes hand in hand with repentance. For who can repent in what they don't believe? Or believe in a God of the Bible and not show no change or degree of change in their own lives to the way they think? or what they do with their lives, or other things. Look with me at verse 6. A royal decree was given by the king at the time, and his name was King Isaiah. Isn't it funny that John goes and preaches, people are already turning from um, the sin, they're already turning from their ways, and they're already putting themselves in sackcloth and dust. And so you imagine it's almost like a domino effect. But eventually he lands on the king, he hears word of it, and instantly he robs, he, he throws off his royal robes and he covers himself in dust and sackcloth. Now, you ever wanted a reminder that the word of God is powerful? It has power to change people and it's not limited by human status, power or riches that people have. The power of God, the power of God is in his word and it will achieve its means. So let's look at the decree of what he, the decree that he gave to the people. And there's two key things we want to look at. The first one is in verse 8. They fasted and wore sackcloth and even the animals as well. That was an ancient means when you fasted and, and wore sackcloth of mourning, outwardly showing that something serious has happened and it's required you to stop all your activities in life and mourn this instance. 
And even the animals had to go through the same thing. You think, why? Why, why would animals have to go through that? I mean, what, they're there for us to eat, you know? But the animals went through it because it demonstrates the seriousness, the seriousness of the message of God's threat to these people. Verse 9, they turned from their ways and called upon God. You see, they turned from their ways. After hearing the message, they turned. They gave up their ways. And the amazing thing is that they were so back, they were so far gone from God. They were pagan in their rituals and their beliefs and traditions. But to hear a message where there's a looming threat upon them of God's judgment, they turn away and they call upon God. They call upon this God that possibly is going to bring judgment upon them. But it's funny that they call upon God because they see that God is able to demonstrate compassion. You see, they turn over God and say, maybe if we relent, maybe God will relent and show compassion on us. It's almost like a defendant in court. He knows he's guilty and knows he's done wrong. He knows he has no plea but the judge is the one that has all the power to put him in prison. That defendant is not looking to anyone else. He's not looking to himself either because he knows he has no hope. And the only one that can show him compassion is the one in that judgment seat. And it's the same way with the people of this city. They're looking to God for compassion. Now, just a word, if indeed we are Christians here, we know that we will often fall short. And this is somewhat of our experience. And sometimes we are fighting well with the, the battle of sin. Sometimes we, are, we seem to be losing the battle of sin. And sometimes that should cause us to sorrow, to have sorrow and to mourn. But as Christians, we don't turn the same, the same way that um, the people of the city are turning, as if they never turned to God before. They already turned to God in favor of repentance in Christ. But in the same sense, we are to keep on turning from the remaining sin that we struggle with and that we battle with. But also knowing with joy and happiness that Christ is our advocate, that Christ has died for our sin. And that it's in Christ that we are made blameless without spot or blemish before the presence of God. Let's look at verse 10, and here we'll see the response of God. When God saw what they did and how they turned from the evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Now you may think, oh wait, did God change his decision? He says he's going to bring judgment upon them. Because the words that Jonah preached to the people appeared as if God was determined to overthrow the city and its strong language. But for one thing, God does not change. He cannot change. It's impossible. And if God could change, 
then we will all be doubting our salvation right now. But it cannot change. And so that leads me on to say this, that what God has said through the prophet Jonah was a conditional statement. It was either you're on this route, this is your sin, the way you live in has come to me, and I'm a God of justice. I must satisfy my, I must satisfy my justice. You will either turn, and I will show compassion and relent from bringing my justice upon you. Or you will not turn, and my judgment will surely fall upon you. You see, it's a conditional statement based on the actions of those people. But this is a big question, and it's posed to everyone. Why might today, or just in general, would God relent from judgment on a people or a, a person? You can answer me that question. I was meant, I was meant to um, ask the kids, but I can't see that many kids here. There's only, you know, only a few. But why might God relent from bringing judgment? Who can, who can, who can answer me that question? Yep. Repentance, okay. Great repentance. What else? Pardon? Merciful. Exactly. I'm looking for another word. It's, like, it's, it's, it's nearly there, but I'm looking for another word. Pardon? Jesus. Fantastic. Gracious. Ooh, gives it L. Pardon? Exactly. He loves us. Well, I was more looking for the fact that God is love. In light of God being a God of justice, as the Bible describes it, he is a God of love. The reason I say this, the reason I was looking for the answer is often we think, we look to Jesus and we think, well, God is continually angry. He doesn't have to control his anger. And so I'm going to look to Jesus. That's completely wrong. It's a completely wrong thinking of God. That's the reason I want to remind you that God is love. But that poses the question, how does God demonstrate, how is God a, a God of justice? But how is he a God of love? Because he cannot cease to be one and not the other. He's a God of justice and God of love. How does he demonstrate that? How can he be full of mercy, compassion, and patience for sinners, for his creation, who do not turn to him? who love sin. How does he show his judgment? He has done that through Jesus Christ on the cross. You see, we had no way of ultimately repaying God for our sin. We are destined to repay so with justice from God. But Christ will stand in our way on the cross for everyone that believes. You see, the Son of God was without sin. And this Son of God will take upon the eternal judgment we deserve. And he was forsaken by God on that cross. Yet we were the ones that deserved that. Yet it was the most ultimate act of love 
and mercy ever shown in action. He would eventually die and rise again on the third day and stand at the right hand of God. Love, mercy, judgment, all coming together upon the cross where Jesus died for sinners. See, this is a wonderful thing and it brings much of hope and a sense of positive news for us. But in the same way that God says, turn, and if you turn, I will relent. If you don't turn, I will not relent. This is a conditional thing because it's based on what we do with Christ. It's based on what we do with this Jesus Christ who came to die for our sins. Acts 17.30 says, In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. You see, this Jesus Christ, God has commanded us, everyone, regardless of who you are, regardless of your experience, to turn the same way the Niviats turned and turn to Jesus Christ. And if we turn to Jesus Christ, we'll be forgiven of our sins, made right before God, be restored to a right relationship with God, and know eternal joy with God, and no longer be enemies against God. But at the very same time, at the very same time, if we don't turn to Jesus Christ, if we follow our own ways, if we ignore Jesus Christ, God won't relent. He will ultimately bring judgment upon us for the rest of eternity. It has to be said But another thing as well, many people in many churches, especially in this country, go to church continually, hear the word continually, and have not yet turned to God. I was a part of some churches as well, and so I know what that, that's like. But if we come to church continually, and we hear the word of God, and we're not saved, how bad would that be? Because we have received light upon light upon light. But the Nibiites are the preaching of one man's word turned to God. Yet, if we come to church continually, we've not turned to God. What does that say about us? We read a passage from Matthew uh, 12, verse 4. From Jesus' words. The men of Nivea will stand up at the judgment with, the, with this generation and condemn it. For they repented of the preaching of Jonah and are suffering greater than Jonah is here. Jesus Christ speaking of himself. See, I can't always assume that we are all saved, though I essentially believe that is the case. But sometimes we do need to hear it and it's good for us because eternity is real as a reality. And so if I prick your conscience, it's a good thing. I'd rather have you stressed, fidgety, concerned, but go home believing upon Jesus Christ 
we are done with it. So, with the light we have received, even today, and even as we come week on from week here, our Bible studies and stuff like that, again, I'm not speaking to those who are saved, but those who may not be saved. Have you turned to Christ? Have you turned to Christ? That's all that matters. Let me read something from John chapter 3 to finish off and close off. For God so loved the world that he gave his own one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because of the deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into light so that it may be seen plainly what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Good. I'll finish here. As much as it's hard and it's difficult, I want to show you that this is important. Either we will turn to God or we will turn away from God. But if we are in God, let us praise Christ for what he's done on the cross. Let us praise God for the love, compassion, and mercy he's shown us. Because we cannot save ourselves, but he did save us. So let's um, spend time reflecting on that and... I think Rio will come and give us our prayer.